All right, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to pick up at verse 12. We'll take it down to the, uh, excuse me, verse 11. And then we're going to take it down to the end of the book. The title is Fight and Guard. As we come to this section, Paul is giving the final exhortations to young pastor Timothy. He has a difficult task. He has problems in the church to deal with. Namely, there is a group of men that were uh, creating confusion and division. They were trying to make merchandise of the body of Christ. They were trying to take their resources away from them um, that they might line their own pockets. Paul charges them with covetousness and greed. And that's what precedes this section. And he's going to give exhortations to Timothy to make certain he doesn't end up anywhere near these men. There's many other things that he's charged him with through this book. But as we go through this, the, the big picture is in these last verses, he's going to give four different exhortations. First, he's going to say that he is to flee greed and pursue spiritual wealth. Then he's going to tell him to fight the good fight, abound in good works, and guard what was committed to his trust. We begin in verse 11 where he tells him to flee greed and pursue spiritual wealth. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. So he tells him to flee greed. The, the contrast of but is to what's preceded those false teachers. You're a different man. You're, you're a man of God. And so your life should look very different than these that we've been discussing. And he says you should flee. That means to move quickly from a point or an area in order to avoid presumed danger or difficulty. Get away from danger. What's the danger? Well, there's a few of them that he's named, but the, the main thing is get away. Get away from that covetousness, that greed that has shipwrecked so many people. Flee this. Don't allow it to be something that touches you. So in contrast to those, you need to run away from that. But pursue. So flee the greed, but pursue, and he's going to name Six different Christian virtues that I'm calling spiritual wealth. They're after money. You need to be after something that's far more valuable than that. How about being after righteousness and being after godliness, being after faith and love, being after gentleness? These are the things that really are valuable. These are the, the, the treasures of this life. And that's what you need to be pursuing. The word pursue is a Greek word, dioko. And that word is often translated, mostly translated in the New Testament, as persecute. So that would be definition number one. Definition number two is to follow zealously after. And that's what he's calling him to do. He's not telling him to persecute these things, but to have a zealous pursuit of these spiritual virtues. I, I, I bring the point out that this word is also translated as persecute in other places because it kind of gives you a sense of the intensity with which we ought to be following after these six virtues. It's not haphazard. It's not some casual approach that you take. And if you end up landing on righteousness, well, that's a good thing. Lucky you. Or if you end up being loving, well, that's good. I always wanted to do that. It's not that kind of hands-off pursuit. This is a very deliberate, 
active, engaged um, pursuit that we are to be in. So pursue spiritual wealth. And the first on that list of these six virtues, number one, is righteousness. You are to pursue, zealously follow after righteousness. It's descriptive of a person who's living a holy life. It's a person who's making decisions day by day. This is the righteous thing. This is the commandment from the Lord. I'm going to walk in it. I'm going to obey. I'm not going to allow my mind to go go to lust. I'm not going to allow it to settle upon bitterness or anger or resentment. I'm not going to ignore the need of the person around me. I'm going to obey the word of God. Both the sins of omission and commission are in view as we talk about living a righteous life. Now we're not talking about obtaining righteousness for entrance into heaven. None of us can do that. There's nobody can do that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we are talking about that behavior, that character that we have. Righteousness is descriptive of a holy life that comes by obeying the commands of God found written in the word of God. We must, if we're going to pursue righteousness, we must know what the righteous one wants. And if we want to know what he wants, then we got to have to open the Bible. And we're going to have to read it. And we're going to have to interact with each other. Because in interacting with each other, in our fellowship with each other, I watch how you're loving that brother. And I see how you're serving that sister. And I see the way you're giving um, to the needs of those around you. And I see the way you preach the gospel. And I see the way you serve in the body of Christ. And all of those things become a living testimony of how I should be pursuing righteousness as well. Yes, it's the word of God. But it's also being in close proximity with other people that are on fire for Jesus. And as I walk that out and as I rub shoulders with you and as you rub shoulders with each other, we are challenged to follow after righteousness. Here are some of the things that are important to the Lord when we talk about righteousness. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. How many of you remember that song? Does anybody remember? All right, just like eight of us. Okay, so yeah, pretty much the song is just like that. It's just written, put to a tune. But this is what the Lord requires of us. When we talk about being righteous, here are three things. We should do justly. Justice is not the world's idea. That's God's idea. That we would do the right thing to one another. That we would plead the cause of another person. That we would um, see people in need and we would run. We would seek to show them justice. We would not take advantage of them. We would not show partiality and be self-serving and do what's convenient for me and for my interests and my circle of friends and my peer group and, and my church to the exclusion of other people. No, justice is I'm looking out for the needs of other people. He says that we should love mercy. Now, being merciful is one thing. Loving mercy is another. You see, many of us have walked out mercy before because we know we're supposed to, right? Somebody's done something wrong to you and you are mad. You are so upset and you have every right 
to impose upon them the consequences for what they've said, what they've done, or what they haven't done. It's in your, it's in your power. Their failure has given you some authority to, to launch out and to say something or to do something. But the Holy Spirit convicts you and says, be merciful. Like, oh yeah, man. All right, I'll be merciful. But you're not loving it, <laughs> right? You're not loving that mercy at that, at that moment. But you know that the Lord says of himself that he delights in mercy. Now that comes natural to him. It doesn't come natural to us. But the exhortation is that we would love mercy. We would love those opportunities to let people off the mat, if you will. We've got them pinned. We've got the upper hand. We have the moral high ground. We've got the argument all lined out. And we can pin them and make them feel. But the Lord says, I want you to show mercy to them. I want you to love it while you're doing it too. That's what's so different. I mean, the world can show mercy... But it's the Christian, it's a follower of God who loves to show mercy. Anybody feeling a little convicted right now besides me? Same eight people. Okay, so I'll get the rest of you before it's over. But hey, it, it, when we've been wrong, there is that strong sense of justice and, you know, retribution. But the Lord says, love mercy. That's what he requires. And then he says, and walk humbly with your God. You know, we understand that God is the one with whom we have to do. We obey him. We walk after him. So righteousness, the number one virtue that we are to um, zealously follow, pursue. Number two, godliness. Very similar to the first exhortation of pursuing righteousness. But this is more descriptive of that overall attitude that should be in our life rather than those individual decisions that we make about obey or disobey. This is that attitude of reverence towards God. It's really where the, the, the ability to be righteous comes from is from godliness, having a holy reverence for the Lord. As I have a holy reverence for God, now I am going to walk in obedience I'm not going to just do the right thing, but I'm going to do it with the right heart and the right attitude. Number three, we should pursue faith, which is interesting. Because often we try to manage our life as best we can so we don't ever have to walk by faith. Because that's scary. And that's an unknown. And I'm a person who likes to have everything lined out. Newsflash, we all like to have that. Nobody likes to be in uncertainty and uh, is this going to work out? That, that's, it creates a level of anxiety. But this is where faith comes in. I trust that the Lord has called me to this and he's led me to this. So I'm going to stand fast and I'm going to pursue it. Rather than trying to circumvent this thing called faith. The Lord is always bringing opportunities into our life to have faith. That's right. That's why the kids are in here. I love that. That's all you're going to remember, and that's all you need to remember. The Lord wants us to be a people of faith. We are a people of faith. We are saved by faith, right? We're not saved by our good works. It begins with faith. That we walk by faith, not by what? 
He wants us to be those people that are trusting him and believing him. And the Father finds such pleasure when he sees you trusting him. You say to do the righteous thing. You say to speak the truth. You say to not compromise. All right, Lord, I'm going to do it. But when I do this, I very well may lose my job when I stand for righteousness and I don't go along with this. It takes faith to do that, doesn't it? You, maybe you've gotten into a relationship that you know is not righteous. You know it's not honoring to God. And the Spirit of the Lord has convicted you and says, break that relationship off. You're like, well, if I do that, then I'm going to be all by myself. It takes faith to do that, believing that God is in control. You can't obey a single commandment of God apart from faith. You trust in his character and his nature. So when you fill out the forms and you give answers, you say the truth. Because you're a man, you're a woman of faith that knows that even though I may speak the truth here, it's seemingly going to put me at disadvantage, but I believe that God is going to reward righteousness. So I walk by faith. I'm not trying to get around it. It's part of who I am. And then he says that we should love, that we should pursue after love. The, word, the Greek word is agape. You've probably heard this mentioned before. But I love the way one, this one definition um, uh, is given of this word. It says the quality of warm regard for and interest in another. It's not this cold, callous, love you, bro. No, it's, it's a warm regard it's an affection for that person. It's to esteem them. That, that's what is contained in this, this word love. You've heard me use this definition many times. Love is choosing the highest good for another person. And you can add to that despite the negative consequences upon my life. And if you take that definition and you squeeze it through the character and nature of God, it works. Because he did choose the highest good for us, despite the negative consequences upon him and his son on the cross. He chose to do what we needed. The cross was not for God. The cross was for us. Philippians chapter 2 talks about this love, as that we esteem the interest of others higher than our own. That's the way we do it. And Jesus is the example. He didn't come to this earth and take on human flesh because it was good for him. He did it for us. And so often this is where the challenge comes when we begin to think about loving somebody in, in reality. Where I'm, I'm going to have a warm regard for another person. I'm going to have an affection and an esteem. I'm going to choose the best for another person. And we feel that challenge there. But the Lord has called us to this. And that's what we should be pursuing in your marriage, in your home, with your roommates, with your family. We are to pursue love. We are to pursue patience and gentleness. Paul was seeing his companions fall away. And he says, stand fast, be patient, be gentle. Timothy had to go and give a real hard rebuke to these false teachers. It wasn't going to be a pleasant meeting. It wasn't going to be, you know, kumbaya and they weren't going to, you know, you know, be having, you know, this warm interaction. It was to deal with trouble. And as he dealt with the trouble, they were either going to humble themselves or he was going to have to reject that divisive person. But he says, be gentle. Be authoritative, but be gentle. How does that work? 
Well, you know in your own heart when you've crossed that line and you just got to walk humbly before the Lord and allow him to speak to you. So those are the six virtues that we should be zealously pursuing. Again, it's not, the word persecute is not the way to translate it, but I just want to throw that out there. This is what we should be persecuting, hunting down with the focus to lay hold of. These six things in our life. That was good for young Pastor Timothy. It's good for old Pastor Troy. And it's good for all of us as well to pursue these things. Verses 12 through 16. He talks about fighting the good fight. In verse 12 he says, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called. And have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So the next exhortation is fight the good fight. The first fight there is your verb, and the second fight is your noun. Fight the good fight, the fight of of the Christian faith. You are to fight this. And here's the interesting thing about that word fight. It is a present imperative, means it's present tense, and it's a commandment. Or it could be like this. It suggests that this is a never-ending struggle. That's not necessarily encouraging to you, I know. It's not necessarily encouraging to me. Because we like the idea that we got over the hump, right? Ah, I'm over the hump. Means it's, now it's all easy. Yeah, that's until you come to what? The next hump. <laughs> Life is like that. And we are in a struggle. It's like, well, I've got to struggle and fight. Now I've, I've made the right decisions and I've come out on the other side of that. Yeah, You did. You came out on the other side of that battle. But we are in a war. And a war is made up of many battles. And so he's not trying to deceive young Pastor Timothy. He's saying, you need to fight. You need to continually, from now on, be in the fight, the good fight. He's not afraid to call him to suffer for the gospel. To be in the struggle. We have an enemy. That we are battling against. In John chapter 10 verse 10. Jesus said of this enemy. The thief does not come except to steal. And to kill and to destroy. I've come that you might have life. And that you might have it more abundantly. He is our enemy. is there to make your life miserable. To ruin it. 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary. Not just Timothy's. Not just Troy's. Your adversary. Who doesn't like me? The devil doesn't like you. It says, your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You have an enemy that is trying to pull you down. And so we must fight and not go along with what he wants and not give in to the temptations and not be deluded in the moment. There's a quote here that I've... It's one of my favorite quotes of an author about spiritual warfare. And it's from Albert Barnes, old Presbyterian minister. And he says this, Satan does not openly appear. He approaches us not in repulsive forms, but comes to recommend some plausible doctrine. To lay before us some temptation that shall not immediately repel us. He presents the world in an alluring aspect invites to pleasures that seem to be harmless and leads us in an indulgence until we have gone so far that we cannot retreat. That is your adversary. 
He does not come in the red outfit and pitchfork. It would be nice if he did. Like, oh, this is spiritual attack right now. It'd be nice if he said, hey, I'm about to offer you something, and if you, you know, follow through with it, it's going to bring total ruin to your life and to your family. Your kids will be devastated by it. Your wife will be devastated by it. So I want to tempt you with this, and I'm hoping you'll say yes because I am here to rob, kill, and destroy you. What do you say? Well, that would be easy. Uh, no, thank you. But he doesn't come that way. He comes with a temptation that seems like, well, what's the harm in that? He comes with a doctrine or the teaching that says, well, there's something commendable in it, and yet it undermines, ultimately, the good fight that we are involved with. So we must be aware. It's the physical world that we are most in tune with, that we are most familiar with, right? I'm hungry. I'm cold. I'm hot. I'm, ang you know, I'm angry. I, I like that. I don't like that. That's pretty. That's ugly. I mean, we're in tune with this physical world, and that's what's most apparent to us. So we often miss the attacks that come in a spiritual nature. We are often oblivious to them, but we must train ourselves in this fight. Our enemy likes to camouflage himself, as we just read from Albert Barnes. He doesn't appear you know, ready to, to do us harm. Many of you hunt. You know, you go out, you camouflage yourself, and you try to disguise yourself. You fish, you, you camouflage the hook, you, you try to hide what your, you know, your true intention is. You're trying to deceive. And that is what your enemy is doing with you. You know, I, when I hunt, there are many times, I mean... It, more than half the times, I'll be sitting up you know, in the tree and a, a deer will stop and look, will start looking around, start bobbing its head, start you know, thrusting its foot into the ground because it realizes that big blob up on that tree is not supposed to be there. But they don't know. They can't, they can't quite figure it out. They know it's not right, but they don't know who it is. They don't know it's a hunter. And, and they'll, they'll stick around. I mean, sometimes they will do that for 30 minutes trying to figure out if it's danger. Oh, it's danger. <laughs> it's, it's danger. But some of us are like that. We've been hanging around. We've been pounding our fists. We've been looking at it. We've been thinking it. I, you know, I kind of think this might not be a good thing. I kind of think that that's trouble. You know, this really could be the enemy at work here. I'm not sure, though. I might get a little closer. I'm going to check it out. Just run. Just run. Because if you're having those thoughts, it very well may be the Spirit of God giving you discernment. This is not healthy. This is not good. So we must train ourselves in a spiritual fight as people that are so used to the physical world around us. And then you have the Word of God and the Spirit of God and brothers and sisters in Christ to help you, to help me in this process. Timothy is commanded to fight. How do we fight? Well, we don't use carnal means. We pray. We share the good news. 
This is our spiritual toolbox. We encourage and edify the family of God. We seek to build each other up in the faith. We hold to sound doctrine. We stand fast in our devotion and our service to the Lord. And we don't become entangled with the affairs of this world. That's how we fight the good fight. He says in verse 12, as we keep on going, he says that we should lay hold of eternal life. Lay hold of eternal life. Straight out of a, a, a Greek dictionary for this word, lay hold, it means to take hold of in order to make one's own. So here's the question I have. Have you made eternal life your own? What do I mean by that? I mean, it's great that your wife is a Christian, but it doesn't make you a Christian. It's great that your husband's a believer, but it doesn't make you a believer. It's great that your granddaddy was, you know, a pastor and he, he did all this, but it doesn't make you a Christian. You've got to lay hold of it yourself. People are not born again by the will of man. If that was the case, none of our kids would be away from the Lord. All of our family members would be walking closely with Jesus because that is our, our will. But people are not saved by my will. They have to make it their own. How do you make eternal life your own? There's only one way. There's only one way. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You must believe in Jesus. You must have a confession that Jesus is master that he died on the cross for your sins, and that he rose from the dead three days later. That confession, that belief, will grant eternal life because of what Jesus did on the cross for you. And you say, well, I believe, I, I believe that to be true, but I've never really made that my own. Well, then you're close to it, but you don't have it. You must make it your own. You must, with the confession of your mouth, as a matter of your will, Decide you're going to follow Jesus Christ. You know, done a lot of weddings. And there comes that part of every wedding ceremony where you come to the declaration of intent and you ask the question, do you take this man, do you take this woman? And most weddings, every now and then you have a few English majors and they will say, not I do, but I will. And so you come to that point and they'll say, they'll say do you take this man? And, and they say, I do. And the woman will say, I take that man. I do. That is a declaration of intent. Here's the question. Have you made a declaration of intent about the offer of salvation that Jesus has given to you? If you haven't, you have not made it your own. And you can't get to heaven any other way except through Jesus Christ. So maybe you're here today. And you know that's what needs to be done. You know that's the next thing. You've been around Christianity. You've been around Christians. You've been in or around out of church. And you know about the Bible. You know even some Bible stories. But it's never been your decision. You've never made it your own. You've never laid hold of eternal life. You can only do that through faith in Jesus Christ. And the Lord would say, make that confession today. Keep on reading in verses 13 through 16. He says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep 
this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. So he exhorts him to live a good life, and he does it in light of the witness of his Lord. Jesus didn't compromise, even when he was before Pontius Pilate. He had a good confession. Timothy had a good confession. In verse 15, as we continue reading, he says, which he will manifest in his own time. His kingdom will be manifested in his own time. The coming of Jesus should motivate us to live a right and holy life and pursue after spiritual things. And God will establish it whenever he wants. We don't get to determine that. And then continuing still to the end of verse 15 and 16, we see that the exhortation is in light of the character of his Lord. That, that God is the sovereign one. He's the potentate. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He alone has immorality, dwelling in an approachable light, whom man has not seen or nor can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. So in light of his witness before Pontius Pilate, pursue. In light of the fact that a kingdom is going to be established, pursue the Lord. In light of the character of our God, that he is sovereign, that he is the king of all kings, that he is the eternal one, that he's too pure for eyes, follow after righteousness. And so the exhortation is given. Now, in verses 17 through 19, we come to the third major exhortation of this passage, which is to an instruction that he's to give to the wealthy people of the church. So talk to the rich people and tell them to be humble and tell them to abound in good works. And this is a good word for all of us. All of us should be abounding in good works. Let's read it together. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Be careful to not let your material blessings make you self-sufficient or proud. Tell them to not be haughty. Tell them to not trust in uncertain riches. Hey, you can have everything lined out financially right now, but you don't know what's happening on Monday. You have no idea what's going to happen. And honestly, I think as we look at what's going on in the world, would it be a tremendous shock to us today more than it would have been you know, six months ago? We would have been totally floored by it. But if you've heard that the entire economic system of the world broke down and shut down over the coronavirus, I mean, how many of us would be like, didn't see that coming? I think all of us are kind of like, wow, this is tenuous. You know, you've planned, you've done everything that you, you can do, but at best, riches only are uncertain. So says the Word of God. No, 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 you don't understand. I've got great investments. <laughs> Listen, don't trust in those things. They are uncertain, the Word of God says. Now, that shouldn't cause any of us to not want to plan and be good stewards, right? We should do all of those things. But we should have our confidence in who? In the Lord. Not in what we can make or not in what we can earn. And the problem with, I guess, some in this congregation was that they were feeling a little bit haughty. They were looking down. They were feeling proud. Well, you know, you wouldn't be so poor if you could do things like me. 
mean, look at me. I'm, I'm, you know, I just work hard, and that's how I got all this. And there's that pride and that's arrogance, failing to understand, as it, the text goes on to say, that it's God who makes somebody and gives somebody riches to be enjoyed. Well, why hasn't he made me rich? I, I don't know. Maybe because he knows. I don't, I don't know. I don't even know who you are that's asking that question. But it may be that if the Lord made you rich, that those uncertain riches would turn your heart from the Lord. You know what? If that would be the case, then Lord, keep it all away from me. I want to lay hold on eternal life, not a good retirement. I want to have that which is going to last forever. And so there's that exhortation that's being given here. Don't trust in these things. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the Lord? Or are you trusting what you are able to provide for yourself? Now, I do want to say this, and we gave a whole message on it earlier in our study in uh, 1 Timothy. But look at the end of verse 17. It says, God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. God is the one who gives blessings, and they are meant to be enjoyed. And so we should be able to have pleasure like no other group of people because God is the one who's given to us. So if you've been blessed financially, enjoy what you have. However, make certain that you use those blessings for good works. That you store up good works for the day in which you stand before the Lord. So abound in good works. Enjoy your wealth, yes, but be a good steward of what you have and use it for the kingdom. Use it for the kingdom of God. Invest in that which is eternal. We close here with the last exhortation in verses 20 and 21. O Timothy... Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle, babblings and contradictions of, of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. So the last exhortation is guard what is committed to you. Guard. Be circumspect. Don't allow this most precious thing, the gospel, don't allow that to be taken from you. Be aware of those that are in your midst that have all kinds of profane and idle things to talk about that lead them astray. It's falsely called knowledge. Don't get tied up in that stuff. Guard what is committed to your trust. 1 Timothy 3.15, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4-9. They tell us what has been entrusted to us. What is it that he's to guard? What is it that he's been entrusted with? It's the gospel. 1 Timothy 3.15 But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And here it is, the pillar and the ground of truth. We have been entrusted with the truth of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 4-9, and I'm not going to read it all, but verse 4 says, But as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our heart. What is it that he's to guard? The gospel. His faith in the Lord. He should be preserving that. 
And this is what has been entrusted to you. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Then you are a steward. And it's been put in your care. It's been put in your keeping. And the exhortation is guard it. Be wise with it. Distribute it out. As Paul said to the Thessalonians, we've got to speak. We've got to open our mouth and share the gospel. Well, you know, Troy, with everything that's going on in the world, I just don't know that this is a good time to really be talking about the gospel. Oh, it's the perfect time to be talking about the gospel. It's always the right time to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is good news. Have you forgotten what it's done for you? Have you forgotten that it's allowed you to lay hold of eternal life? Have you forgotten the benefits of peace and joy? Have you forgotten the benefits that you're able to lay your head down on the pillow at night and you're not rid, uh, uh, just uh, full of guilt, riddled with guilt? That's what I'm trying to say. You're riddled with guilt. You have a clear conscience because you've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Have you forgotten how it's transformed you and changed you and it's brought in an abundant life to you? How could we possibly be quiet? Paul says, I'm a debtor to all men. Jeremiah said, I try, I wasn't going to speak, but it was the word of the Lord was like a, a fire in me. It was burning me up. I had to speak. We must speak. We must speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must tell people that unless they put their faith and trust in him, they will be lost. We are to persuade men and women to put their trust in the Lord. Guard what was committed to you. These four exhortations, flee greed and pursue spiritual wealth. Fight the good fight. Abound in good works and guard what was committed to your trust. These are good exhortations for all of us to look at and say, am I walking it out? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word and your truth. We thank you, Lord, that you brought us close to you through your son, Jesus Christ. We are once alienated. We are once far from the promises, but you have brought us near. Lord, help us to walk wisely. May we have the right pursuit happening in our life. So many things for us to chase after. But Lord, these six things, these are the right things to pursue.